This podcast is brought to you by Australia's LGBTQIA plus community media organisation, Joy. Keep Joy on air by becoming a member, a subscriber or donate. Head to joy.org.au. Joy, a diverse sound for a diverse community. This is another podcast of World Wide Wave, the international LGBT news and current affairs show, every week on Australia's first LGBT radio station, Joy 94.9. Surfing the globe, bringing you news, views and current affairs for the LGBT community. This is the World Wide Wave. It's the show that takes you around the globe, one queer story at a time. It's World Wide Wave, Joy's international news and current affairs show for and by the LGBTI community. It's great being back here in the Victorian Pride Centre. I'm Matt, and we are on the lands of the Bunurong people of the Kulin Nation, where tonight I'm joined by Stefan. Good evening. Good evening. Good evening. And a wave of anti-LGBT hate is sweeping across formerly safe countries from the UK to Canada, New Zealand and Australia. The amplification of hate across multiple platforms, from blogs to mainstream mainstream media or social media, gives it a global audience. Many of the origins appear to be in America. But is it fair to point the finger or has social media just given a platform to a problem that has long been present? This extremism has been driven by a mix of religion, nationalism, technology, commercialisation of news and sexual politics. Dr Justin Ellis, the Senior Lecturer in Criminology at the University of Newcastle, has examined the growth of far-right opposition to LGBTIQ expression in Australia and the US in his research titled Representation, Resistance and the Digiqueer, Fighting for Recognition in Technocratic Times. Here's a taste of what's coming up tonight. We've got a proportion of the population who perceive themselves as being aggrieved. They perceive themselves as being legitimate victims. They are amplifying their messages through digital networks. A lot of it's coming through YouTube, actually, where you've got these overlapping blogs, digital platforms, what's called the Manosphere that prioritises, you know, a form of hegemonic masculinity that's quite misogynist. Uh, It can range from, um, you know, nationalism to right-wing extremism to um, white supremacy. Talking all things social media tonight, could you give up social media? There's all this hate out there. Could you step away, delete the apps? Maybe you've done it. Tell us, tell us how you yeah. how you weaned yourself off this. If you were, this if thing you did, he's grabbing you. But would you just delete it if you are the recipient of hate, or would you delete it because it might be fueling hate for other people at some point, and you're part of it? Well, you do get some of these uh, some of the high profile media people who have. Uh, you know, deleted their Twitter accounts. Mm. There's, I, I mean, I remember in the um, marriage equality uh, debate in Australia, I, I had to take some time off. I just stopped looking at social media mm. and didn't, didn't it open up? But it's kind of become this go-to, isn't it? If you're yeah, not, it has. I mean, uh, it's it, what it, you scroll through. That's what people do filling. first thing in the morning when you grab your phone. Yeah. You just catch up on what you've missed overnight. Like so many, so much stuff happened overnight. So could you give it up? 
Drag Queen Storytime has become the latest target for anti-LGBT hate. Highly organised groups seek out events run in local libraries and community centres, then cause such a heightened state of fear through online threats that local council then call the events in the nay off in the event of protecting their staff and visitors. Dr. Justin Ellis is a senior lecturer in criminology at the University of Newcastle and has been researching the online fight for and against recognition of LGBT people. As we have seen increased attacks, both physical, verbal and online, against the LGBTIQ community in Australia, we asked Justin how the maps, how he maps this back to the USA. You know, in the US, one of the main leaders of um, conservative groups and anti-LGBTQ plus groups is the notion that same-sex attracted men, for example, are a threat to children. This is underscored by uh, religious ideology that's been perpetuated through criminalization and pathologization. So even though we've seen decriminalization, depathologization in, in, in recent years of same-sex conduct, we've had enfranchisement with same-sex marriage, uh, anti-discrimination legislation and so on, we see these legacies of stigma coming to the surface. And I guess my research focuses on what are the particular conditions that lead to this rise in hate. But definitely at the moment, they are coming out of the US and they're being amplified through this hyper-legislation against drag, for example, and obviously the debate over, over transgender people's access to medical care and a whole range of other aspects of um, what they're dealing with if we take drag queen story time, which is, I guess, a hot button issue at the moment, but probably wasn't even around, you know, 12 or 18 months ago here in Australia anyway, why is this such a lightning bolt issue? And at the same time as we're sort of celebrating, uh, you know, Barry Humphreys and his life and his female persona of Dame Edna Everidge, it doesn't seem logical. It doesn't. And you, you raise a really good point, Matt. We've got this incongruity, as I said, you know, same-sex marriage, uh, anti-discrimination legislation, the decriminalisation of, of, you know, consensual male same-sex conduct. And um, we've had drag for, well, forever, living memory at least. And then the other point that I, I always think of is children's pantomime. And I'm bringing that in because obviously Dame Edna Average and, you know, other, other you know, Danny LaRue, um, you know, comedians and, and um, performers have, have done drag for, as I said, in, in living memory and, and a, lot, a lot longer before that. And I think the pantomime aspect is particularly interesting because pantomimes are performed in front of children where there would be men in drag and, and um, impersonating women or what have you. So I think that um, we're, we're, and back to, the, back to the lineage of drag queen story time, that started in San Francisco in 2015. Uh, and it, those shows were being conducted without any threats, without any uh, um, protests up until about 2018. And then we see this big uptick going through to 2020 and then COVID hits and we have this big pause. There's been a resumption since COVID, but I think the big factors that were coming into play, I think Trump may have, um, you know, fire starters. Well, his, his presidency started in 2017, went through to the end of 2020. And I think that what we've seen through what we call the Trump effect, where political figures, public figures are permissive of violence. Trump was glorifying violence on Twitter. So this does have an impact. Research shows that Incidents online uh, against racial and ethnic minorities in London, for example, can lead to in-person attacks. Um, my research shows with Drag Queen Storytime that it also happens the other way around. You'll have someone from Infowars, for example, a, a, an old far-right 
website. They'll turn up at a library with their camera on. They'll film the altercation that they have generated. They might ask the drag queen for their real name. And then what they do is post the video online. They dox that performer. And then they amplify the hate online as well. So one of the issues I think we're facing in terms of educating people, particularly political actors, is that there's this huge criticism of social media. There's a big criticism of big tech. They're not doing enough and they're not. They're not doing enough to moderate hate speech in a timely manner. So it goes through the network and other networks. But the other point is that it's happening the other way around. And the, I think the third dimension is mainstream media like Fox News and Sky News who are perpetuating misinformation, whether it's about um, Dominion voting systems, for example, the defamation case that's just been settled in the US, or in Australia, um, feeding climate denial, as ACMA have just found with Sky After Dark on Sky News. So I think we've got lack of moderation, we've got amplification of hate by political actors that provides this permissiveness, uh, and then we've got that going through traditional media adversarial framing as well. It's easy to sort of blame Donald Trump, I guess, and the Trump effect, was it happening before and just less visible, more hidden? And Trump has sort of given permission for people to, you know, really push and share those views? Yeah, I think I think this is a really good, really good question, Matt. And it's not one that I can necessarily answer in relation to my research, because most of that is picking up what's happened from, say, 2015 and going into the present. But I think that you're right, and that's one question that I'm definitely scrutinising in um, future research, both here and in the UK, is the extent, what I'm calling, you know, the revelation, uh, in, in that we've got a proportion of the population who perceive themselves as being aggrieved. They perceive themselves as being legitimate victims. They are amplifying their messages through digital networks. A lot of it's coming through YouTube, actually, where you've got these overlapping blogs, digital platforms, what's called the manosphere that prioritises, uh, you know, a form of hegemonic masculinity that's quite misogynist. Uh, it can range from, um, you know, nationalism to right-wing extremism to um, white supremacy. They're all coexisting within this malign ecosystem of ambiguity, misinformation, disinformation, and so on. So I think you're right. I think to an extent we're just having this revelation of what some people really think but what I tend to do to, I guess, get a measure of this through through the ballot. So what are, how are people voting with their feet? The Festival of Light, Fred Nile's party, didn't win a, a seat in the upper house after Fred Nile being there for years, decades. The Australian Christian Lobby did not win a seat in the upper house. Mark Latham has been re-elected. Uh, and I guess that contest continues. Uh, he sent a homophobic tweet, allegedly... Um, relating to Alex Greenwich, the out gay member for Sydney. Um, Alex Greenwich has, has um, filed a defamation suit. Latham is refusing to apologise. So uh, it's interesting that, that a lot of norms are being tested through defamation at the moment. And I think that speaks to the lack of moderation online and um, what big tech really need to do to um, come to the party in a timely manner. Dr Justin Ellis, Senior Lecturer in Criminology at the University of Newcastle with us on Joy 94.9. And he mentioned doxing. If you mm. don't know what that is, it's basically where you you um, name somebody online with the intent of, you know, with malicious intent, and then you share it around and you get other people to, you know, chase after them, follow them. Horrible. And that's Horrible. become so easy to do. You know, people just screenshot things and then 
post them with details and to amplify. I think that's what it was saying, the amplification. I think that that's it. this it's, really this It's generating process. an issue, There's actually then videoing it, sharing it, getting other people to share it, and it influences the algorithms and everything so that it actually goes further. It's and the, a, yeah. and know, it's a very... There is a process. I, I it, didn't realise it there so was actually... It is so organised. Or- orchestrated. Orchestrated. That is the, exactly the word. Yeah. Um, coming up, uh, we're going to discuss with Justin why it's so hard to moderate hate speech online. This is World Wide Wave. Joy.org.au, not just a radio station. Hi, this is Janne, Mr. Gay Finland, and you are listening on the World Wide Wave on Joy 94.9. What is the alternative to social media? Yeah, so telephone, do we, we don't even call people. We just, I mean, the number of people that don't take phone calls don't even Actually, listen to voicemail. you look at it and go, oh, no, I'm not going to take that call. Yeah. It's going to be spam. Yeah, because, and before that, you would never know who was calling you. Yeah. You would just pick up. Um, what so about alternatives to social cards. media? Oh, postcards. Letters. I mean, it's quite nice still, to receive but a letter. You can do e-postcards now. I yeah, but again, that, that it's not the same the thing. the thing of, you know, it's, oh, just still your little, you need your little mm. device to, to look at it. Now I mean, I'm, I'm guilty of it. I sent some uh, invitations by, you know, emails for our wedding, like four years ago. Yeah. And it would have been nice to do the full to do the whole shabam, printed thing. But to t- oh well, we are talking uh, alternatives to social media. Have you uh, have you given up on social media? Could you do it? Could you step away and delete the apps? Or have you done it for even for a short time because of something? Uh, messages coming in. So Robbie has sent in messages. Firing things up here, Robbie. Social media is not important to people who work hard and prioritise their values. Uh, Rupert Murdoch has been pushing hate for 30 years. Your generation is just having this re- revelation now. The rest of us have been living with decades. Get a grip, he says. Get a I, grip. I, I must say, I probably disagree a little bit because it was very different. Anybody can because their own editor now you know you you yeah, are instead curating of like, your own thing rather than being curated by yes there well, at is least newspapers had editors who fact well fact checked well, proof checked whatever yeah and, and there were like five or six of them maybe whereas now as you say there's billions of editors around the world yeah so i don't know i mean um and yes i mean we all try to work hard but hey we do need a bit of social being social. And you were also, um, Dina Curry, who yeah. uh, is a Joy Breakfast presenter, presenter, Breakfast here, um, and does drag, drag queen mm. story times. Yeah. Uh, yeah. He's had an experience there oh, as well. He, he, was, uh, he was interviewed on the ABC a couple of weeks ago because it was upcoming, and most of his uh, drag story time had been cancelled. And uh, But I know that he, he posted on Instagram the video, which I made me really think about something that he say, was saying to his friend, to people following him on Instagram, please do not forward me the hate I'm getting because I'm aware of it. I don't need to see any more of so it. So this is his friends who was who are saying, Look, are did, did you see this? Did you see I, what they're saying about you? I think you? so. The people oh, do the people that I not thought about think that. they're caring. Yeah, were but actually, that it's this, making well, it worse. I know about it. So I don't need to see any more. I oh. mean, that's how, how I get. I'm paraphrasing. It might yeah. not be the complete intent behind the message, but and it made me realize actually there is also a bit of trauma by doing that yep. by sending people this you know you are being more. subject of giving hate you giving mm. you more basically and yeah wow we're uh, unraveling social media here tonight to find out what the hell is going on and dr justin ellis a senior lecturer in criminology at the university of newcastle has been studying anti-lgbt hate online he's just been talking to us about youtube as a source of anti-lgbtiq hate 
which is a bit contrary to the usually recognised sources of social media hate being Facebook and Twitter. Regardless of the platform, we asked Justin why it is so hard to control or moderate hate on social media. I think there's a mix here. I think one of the issues here is that, and this is back to the triumvirate of the traditional adversarial news model that breaks people down into for and against, so it pits, pits, you know, pitches people against each other. That's the starting point. You see that reflected online as well, and people are becoming more and more brazen in their... They're disinhibited because they're, they're disassociated with the person that they're, they're speaking to. Uh, and then I think that, obviously, Facebook is really quite open and quite discursive. Twitter is, is punchier. Um, and then YouTube becomes a, a, a very different, I think, a very different kettle of fish, as does Reddit, for example. But I think the shorter answer to that is that Twitter, Reddit... Uh, in the last six months of Trump's presidency, they revised their uh, hate speech policies and upped the ante in terms of what was considered um, hate speech. But things are highly dynamic at the moment. Elon Musk has purchased Twitter and the Centre for Digital Hate, well, they estimate that hate has quadrupled on Twitter under Elon Musk's tutelage. And then we've got, you know, the gaze against groomer rhetoric coming out of the United States and... Um, you know, the argument there from the Centre of Digital Hate as well is that Twitter and Facebook failed to moderate to, to community expectations. Then after the Colorado Spring shooting, you've got this gaze against groomer rhetoric going viral. So everyone except TikTok, with research out of the EU from 2022, all digital platforms except TikTok um, have not shown an improvement in the timely removal of hate speech. And I think it's clear that that's contributing to what we're seeing online and in public, in, in person, in real life. The counter argument would be that this is all freedom of speech. People should be able to say what they want and you're cutting people out. Um, And, you know, Elon Musk is using that as a part of his business model there too. What, in your mind, is the line between hate speech and freedom of speech? Yeah, hate speech is a really broad term. So you've got anti-vilification legislation and then you might have anti-incitement legislation incorporated into criminal law, for example, which we have in New South Wales. I think one of the issues that we're dealing with in Victoria is that your anti-vilification legislation hasn't been amended to include LGBTQ people. And I think my understanding is that the report from Parliament has been, you know, the rec- most of the recommendations have been endorsed, but they just haven't been implemented. And that's, a, that's another question, you know, are we seeing this rising in Victoria because it's partially a consequence of that? I can't answer that question directly, um, but the the other thing that we're seeing um, online is, I guess the, you know, freedom of speech. It's my freedom. It's, it's I, I can say what I want. Well, you know, you can't actually say what you want because freedom of speech needs to be balanced with other rights. Uh, and if you want to talk about the US, for example, so the First Amendment, the, you know, the freedom of speech, the Fourteenth Amendment that no one really talks about is the inherent right to dignity. So below vilification thresholds and criminal thresholds is just the inherent right to dignity. So, no, you can't just say what you want. There are consequences in most contexts for that. If you're doing it privately in your own home or even in a private chat that doesn't involve people that that are from different groups or what have you, then, okay, that's fine. But um, you need to balance that freedom with other freedoms. We mentioned earlier the Fox News Network and their After Dark, quite right-wing programs in USA and Australia. In Australia, their audience is actually very small. Like on on average, it's it's forty or fifty thousand people out of a population of twenty five, twenty six million. 
why does it carry so much influence? It carries so much influence, I think, because it's, it's, then it's subsequently amplified. And because media, all media formats, they amplify tension, they amplify conflict. So I think that we've also, underscoring that is that traditional media outlets are still, or even though Fox News is incredibly lucrative, they're still working out a, a longer-term sustainable business model since the loss of print advertising. So Fox News is definitely um, a lucrative revenue source. But um, I think that, yeah, adversarial framing um, and just the loss of the end of mass communication where you, you know, you had limited media outlets, they had most of the control over the messaging and that, that whole structure has been upended. And so I think that's the, co- the commercial imperative of conflict is also a, c- a component of what we're seeing here. And is the way that social media their use of algorithms where they send you the information they think that you will like based on, you know, what you've looked at before and your, your, your preferences. Is that actually part of the problem in that people are only hearing what they want to hear? So what, what they hear, they see as their truth, but there's whole other groups that are hearing something different that they see as their truths. Are the algorithms actually driving this separation, this divide in society? Yes, well, I, I sort of use the term atomization. So that you've got, you know, everyone's atomized. They're in that. Well, the filter bubble is a book that came out in the in the 2010s, and it was it was talking about personalized algorithms and what have you. There is evidence that those algorithms obviously will influence a person's perspective. But I think we go back to, I mean, Walter Lippmann in the 1920s. You know, in terms of deliberative democracy, you need to read broadly. So yes, to the answer to your question is whether it's algorithmically driven or not. If you're isolated. Uh, and you're only getting one source of information, and you're not checking the validity of that information, then that's likely going to, you know, that's going to colour your perspective. And then you've got a whole other range of factors as well. So you might be online, um, and then you've got other social, other isolating factors. You know, you might not be going out. COVID. This is this was part of the COVID problem. It intensified people's focus online for obvious reasons. And that disinformation, misinformation network, you know, captive audience was like it was on steroids. And I think that, um, yeah, that lack of a common experience because we're not consuming the same media. You know, 20 years ago in Sydney, I think there were five free-to-air TV channels. I don't know if cable news was around then. And I knew as a lecturer then that, you you know, you could go into a lecture hall and, and just, just from scanning the newspaper, looking at the television program, you go, okay, so I can go in and I can probably pitch, um, you know, Minority Report was on. So, you know, half the students will have watched that, some will have watched another program. We can't do that anymore, even with research, you know, events, political events, um, trying to scrutinise certain incidents or whatever. It's really quite, it's getting harder because that common experience is just not reflected in our media consumption. From the University of Newcastle, that's Dr Justin Ellis on Joy 94.9. The commercialisation of hate. So mm. we've sort of talked about the... Um, that ability to create an issue and then get you get a, a whole group of people else. to push it out. There's also the the money behind it. So where you get um, Fox After Dark in America, you know, you probably say Sky After, after Dark, Dark here and pushed, uh, pushed out for free to the regions. And you 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 make outrageous statements, which is then again projected on social media and pushed but- out. I mean, I know that one of the texts was, you know, we had Murdoch and pushing this kind of thing for years, but how is that? I think it's getting worse. So there seems to be less control. Um, well, I mean, once you put it online, it goes, it can go anywhere. And- mm. 
if you want to share, it's going to, you know, within these, and, it's the yeah. interconnected networks that are pushing on, on whether your, you know, beliefs are left or right or whatever. And, there yeah. are groups who are pushing stuff out. And we never used to be able to replay TV. So I guess it mm. would come and go, or unless it was a special edition, on. blah, you would move on. But now you can stream it, you can do it on demand, you can, you know, you can play to your social media. So I guess never it amplifies even more this kind of messages. Coming up on Joy 94.9, Justin explains how visibility is both helping and harming LGBT rights. This is Worldwide Wave. Our diverse communities have one home. Joy. In every country... Masculinity here is, is a highly valued prize. In every corner of the world... I'm fighting for rights of LGBT people in Nigeria. Breaking news and current issues. The LGBT community has definitely pulled together here in Orlando. Mixed with stories of everyday people. I'm a gay imam. All with one thing in common. They're part of the world's diverse LGBTIQ community. Speaking from Ukraine. Mongolia. In Malaysia. Speaking from France. In South Africa. Uruguay. Speaking from Jordan. Slovakia. From South Korea. Every week we bring you stories of the rainbow community across the globe. Worldwide Wave. Dzień dobry. I am Kylie from Poland. It's great to have a place like Joy 94.9, where we can talk about trans issues from across the globe on a worldwide wave. You're on Joy 94.9 on the show that takes you around the globe one queer story at a time. It's Worldwide Wave. Special hello to everybody listening to us on podcast. You can subscribe to receive our podcast automatically. Either go to joy.org.au forward slash Worldwide Wave or iTunes or your favourite podcast platform and don't forget to leave us a review. And we've had a message in. Uh, PJ. Uh, PJ sent us a message. Uh, honestly, social media has probably been the worst invention of mankind. In the history of mankind, there has never been a more poisonous and destructive tool to the social and moral fabric of society. People have never been more connected and more lonely today. Wow, PJ, that's um, quite... Um, uh, you've got some pretty strong views on that. Uh, look, there's much of that that I um, do agree with, but I also note that there's there's some good sides to social media, how um, it's able to connect people across the globe. And, I mean, we sort of find out stories and things mm. to, to pursue here on the show. So, mm, interesting. If you've got alternative views um, to PJ or perhaps you agree wholeheartedly, could you still give it up, though? It is not unusual for young people to hold different, even polar opposite views to their parents. This is perhaps even more dominant when it comes to the online world, where younger digital natives are much more at home than the generation before them. And on World Wide Wave, we often ask guests about where young people fit in an issue as that can be an indicator of what the future holds. Our guest from the University of Newcastle, Dr. Justin Ellis, is on the record believing increased LGBTIQ visibility, particularly in younger generation, is the double-edged sword. We asked him to explain. Increasing hate at the moment, online and in person and the other way around. And at the same time, you've got these enfranchisement through same-sex marriage, decriminalisation of same-sex conduct and anti-discrimination law. Uh, at the same time, more and more people are identifying as something other than heterosexual. We're seeing that in Australia and in the United States uh, and, and possibly other jurisdictions. And so that expands the potential targets for hate, uh, particularly uh, online. And, you know, visibility can be a trap in that sense. So my research is increasingly focusing on this contradiction of, you know, hate and hope. 
and I'm doing field work at the moment where, um, you know, we're all having to navigate. I'm, I'm using social media sometimes reluctantly, but, you know, I'm, need, I'm, I'm needing to get the message out that when I sent out the conversation article, when it was sent out this week, I was like, oh, okay, I need to prepare myself for potential hate online. There was definitely stuff bubbling up on Twitter, but it was quite small. Some of it looked like it was bot driven. Uh, and I think one way to identify that just from my limited experience is that those messages are often very contrarian. So one aspect of the message will be related to the topic that you're talking about. Another one will be completely unrelated and it's confusing. It's a form of interference. So yeah, the double-edged sword is that, but um, also that, you know, we, we grew up previous decades that the threat was always stranger danger. It was coming from outside public spaces and people walking alone at night, but you know, the harm likely is coming from a phone and from someone that, you know, potentially depending on your relationships. So we need to rethink the way that we, um, I guess, need to address these issues. And mainstream media, I think mainstream media framing doesn't help because it's still focused on novelty and in the sense that you're less likely to be attacked by a stranger in public than you are probably to be harassed online by someone that you know. So they're the complexities we're dealing with. So what can be done to if not make things better, then certainly stop things from getting worse. Yeah, yeah, good, good point, uh, good distinction. So I think that definitely online platforms need to come to the party with the timely moderation of hate speech. Some of them. But do they to... need government to tell this, them that well, they have to do that? Well, okay, this is you know this is the perennial debate about self-regulation and the necessity for, for government intervention. I think that the shootings in Auckland in 2019 they're instructive in the Tarrant was live streaming you know, the shooting of 51 people, 40 people, 40 other people were injured. And I think that, um, yeah, that defining what the duty of care is, the big distinction that still needs to be made and isn't likely to be settled, particularly in the US anytime soon, is that digital platforms, they do not have publisher status, so they are still not liable for that content. But they're becoming increasingly liable for the comments because the comments are typed into their platform. So we've still got a blurriness there that needs to be clarified. That'll probably come through case law. And then one of my questions is, you know, you can Twitter and Reddit revise their hate speech guidelines in, in 2020, the last six months of Trump's presidency. Elon Musk has taken over Twitter. Um, we need a concerted approach across digital platforms because messages can be signal boosted. You know, you might post on a, um, a platform like TikTok that's got itself together and, and what have you and, and is, is addressing the timely takedown of, of hate speech, but other sites um, might not. And you might have signal boosting from YouTube, say, to, to, to BitChute, to other, other sites like that. So if it's still going to be self-regulated, I think we need more of a concerted approach from digital platforms. Uh, and then the other thing I think that users can, can do is obviously report hate speech and i think what online platforms are often looking they're looking for repeated you know what might be defined as harassment would be repeated slurs over a certain period of time report those make sure that also that you're that you you're getting a break from social media i know that during covid i instructed students don't watch the mainstream media if you don't have to because it's just going to make it worse look at the health updates but you know the adversarial system is going to, going to keep telling us that it's worse um, or it's, you know, it's, it's the worst it's ever been, but it's not as bad as it could be. And then tell your, you know, get in touch with your elected representatives and tell them what you want. 
that you 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 value freedom of expression. Um, you don't want public debate to deteriorate into acts of violence. And the other one is call out bigotry when it's safe to do so. Everyone has their own risk threshold, and it's not always safe to call out bigotry. Um, so the primary objective is to secure your own safety. Um, so we can we can move on from this phase and and um, I guess quieten down and, and drown out some of those negative voices that are amplifying hate. The research is representation, resistance, and the digiqueer fighting for recognition in technocratic times. The author, Dr. Justin Ellis, senior lecturer in criminology at the University of Newcastle. Justin, thank you so much for joining us on Worldwide Wave. Thanks, Matt. That argument from Justin about visibility has come up a number of times where, um, you know, increased visibility is good because, you know, people see it, they feel more comfortable, they, you know, if you're mm. coming out, then you identify. But it's also bad because people see it and they <laughs> are against it and they, you know, it's yes, hard. Yes, it's... Uh, it's... Uh, actually, last, last week when we had um, Robert from Uganda mm. and his personal stories, one of the things was um, when these negative stories come up in Uganda, it also... Um, lets people know that there's others out there like you so it has a slightly positive yeah no, it's, it's, it's difficult it's really is sensitive um sensitive it's difficult it's um uh, yeah it's it's a bit hard to be honest what because i think the visibility i've made us evolve and be more accepted uh, because, yeah, as you said, there are the people around there. But then, yes, you are the target. You can be the target. And we shouldn't forget the uh, some of the positives of social media. Sharon from the farms just messaged in. Thanks, Sharon. Uh, many years ago, I was introduced to Twitter by a friend while on holidays in Malaysia. I came home and we continued our com conversation and connection mm. via Twitter. And following that, you, uh, Sharon's used the platform to make other friends uh, with similar interests around Australia. So, uh, yes, there are some positives as well. And that advice from Justin every now and then to take a break is probably a good one yeah, as well. Yeah, take a break, but it's, it's, it's really hard as well. So you it really is. have to think We're about ingrained. it and to plan mm. it. Listen live or on demand from wherever you are in the world. Stream us live on joy.org.au or subscribe on iTunes or your favourite podcast platform to World Wide Wave. Hi, this is Darren from MyGWork, the global recruitment hub for LGBT professionals, speaking to you from London on the World Wide Wave. Receive LGBT news from around the world throughout the week. Like World Wide Wave on Facebook now. A huge thank you to Dr. Justin Ellis, Senior Lecturer in Criminology at the University of Newcastle. You can find out more about his work at newcastle.edu.au. And thank you so much for the messages on Facebook where Francis, Liz, Richard, Phoebe and a lot more that have joined or interacted with us on Facebook this past week. And Sharon and TJ and, and Robbie, Robbie on, the messages, on the SMS. Thank you very much. And behind the scenes, our podcaster Peter and our social media master Dean. Catch you next week on World Wide Wave. Thanks for listening to another podcast from World Wide Wave, the show that takes you around the globe one country at a time. World Wide Wave is the international news and current affairs show on Australia's LGBT radio station, Joy 94.9. You can listen live every Tuesday night on 94.9 FM in Melbourne and online at joy.org.au. You'll find all our podcasts at joy.org.au slash worldwidewave or follow us on Facebook for the latest international LGBT news Search W3Joy on Facebook now. 
Thanks for listening to another Joy podcast brought to you by Australia's LGBTQIA plus community media organisation, Joy. Help us keep Joy on air. Head to joy.org.au. Joy, a diverse sound for a diverse community.